Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the seventh episode of Truth Island. I'm joined here with Dave, and today we will be talking about whether we believe that humanity has been improving with the passage of time, or is destined to fall victim to the same malevolent forces that we have always succumbed to, war, famine, disease, and perhaps new forms of destruction that remain unknown to us. Steven Pinker in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, puts forth the bold proposition that over time, humans have become far less violent and less likely to kill one another. As the murder rate over time has been decreasing steadily. However, an interesting philosophical question arises from the ashes of his argument. Is it that technology and greater access to resources have made humans far less in need to kill one another? Or has the increase in knowledge and information made us into better and more moral people? To help me work through these and other concerns, I have Dave here to help guide us through the book. And good afternoon, Aaron. My name is Dave Didimore. Uh, I'm a retired engineer, live in Tacoma, Washington. Worked for the phone company back in Kansas for most of my career. I'm a member of Venice for Peace, and um, I'm very flattered that they asked me to uh, talk about this book with you. And I'm not even really sure how it happened onto it. I'm a regular view of C-SPAN 2, uh, Book TV, and often when I see an author interviewed that's fascinating to me, I will end up picking up the book at a library or however. And I think that's how I got into this. And of course, with my Veterans for Peace background, it was fascinating to me because we are trying to uh, advocate for reducing wars. And to me, it was quite the tome. It was like, I think, 400 pages, and it took me the better part of a month to work my way through. But it's an interesting argument that war and violence are decreasing because everyone has the concept, uh, and I say that with modern television, they say when it bleeds, it leads. We, we only see bad news and we think the world's going to pot. So and someone saying that the world's getting better is quite controversial. But he starts back in prehistory uh, to make his argument and working his way through uh, with very analytically, very scientific arguments. And so it's, it's an interesting journey to follow. Yeah, Dave, I, I mean, if we're listening to the news right now, uh, we have this idea and, and perhaps like every generation feels they've got it the worst. They feel that they're the most dysfunctional generation. They feel like uh, this is the most rebellious times. These are the end times. How does Pinker kind of dispel some of those notions? Well, it's mainly through his documentation and his scientific study. Yeah, I, I would say there's so many things like, you know, as a student, I was reading about the Black Plague. Now, with the virus, there's a lot of discussion about the Spanish flu in 1918. And of interest, you know, my parents were both born in 1911, so they would have been young children. So they certainly would have heard about it. But I've of interest, I've saw something about after documentary that no one talked about afterwards. I guess they just didn't want to talk about negative things. These things occur occasionally. And, you know, we've had a great civil war and this, that, and the other. But 
yeah, he traces our way back and starting, like I said, it's interesting, the prehistory, you say, well, how could, how could he has, have statistics on prehistory? Because there was no, nothing recorded. But uh, his point is you, you dig up a hundred skeletons and if uh, 30 or 40 of them show signs of violence, then that probably is a pretty good reflection of uh, the death rate and due to violence. Um, and he makes a very good point that if you dig up a bone and break it, it breaks like chalk. If you dig up a, bro a bone that has uh, right, uh, rough edges or serrated, or that, that was broken at the time. If so that would be evidence that uh, you, someone was hit with a mallet or, or some kind of a heavy, uh, blunt object, and, and they died as, as a result of causes that weren't natural. Yeah, of course, you know, people fall down and break their legs also, but you're <laughs> right. And, it, and, and especially, but if it was dig, dug up an area where there were several skeletons, it might have been, you know, a group raid or, a, you know, a hunting party or uh, one village raiding another village. So, yeah, there would be reason to, to draw conclusions like that. And, of course, we've seen pictures of broken skulls and other things like that that are obviously the, uh, the result of violence. And, this, and the anthropologists and archaeologists that discovered this were convinced that it wasn't just these skulls deteriorating over time. Like, they, there was definitely evidence that it was hit by some kind of object. Yeah, and as I said, it's, there's maybe, you know, variation. It may not have been exactly 30%. It might have been 29%. It might have been 31%. But compared with our uh, loss of life of, due to violence in the Middle Ages or even now, it, it shows it was far worse in those, in those early days. Uh, life was rough, as they say. That's very interesting because, you know, uh, especially now we have all these talks about like the murder, like I live in New York and we talk about the murder rate uh, skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's important to kind of remember that we're not being murdered as high as we were in the past. Like even, even if the New York City crime rate goes up to where it was in the 70s or 80s, we're, we're still not even coming close to uh, people hitting each other with blunt objects in the Neolithic age. Yes, and that's an interesting question, Aaron, because uh, I'm you know, doing study with a whole bunch of other things I've been involved with. But the interesting fact is the suicide rate is twice the homicide rate. Hmm. Uh, and uh, people just don't realize that because a lot of times suicide is swept under the rug because it's a very embarrassing thing. You know, you know um, I have an aunt. Apparently she was a very beautiful woman and in college age. And, and my father never talked about it. And I have some cousins in Southern California who talked a little bit about it. But I suspect either she was a lesbian or she was pregnant out of wedlock. Either one were grand embarrassments and that the only solution she had was to commit suicide, which it's a very sad thing because it, we're understanding now it's an epidemic in, in our culture now. I'm sorry to hear that, Dave. Um... I, I think that, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the, the suicide rate because we could, we could perhaps argue that our Neolithic ancestors had a much rougher life in, in terms of their mm -hmm. survival. You know, if, if you didn't find food today, there was no supermarket. You were not living to see tomorrow. Yeah. But I think that kind of shows like the power of 
social stigma and social ties. And, and perhaps maybe these social influences are more powerful now it, to the point that they could psychologically influence someone's mind. Whereas a Neolithic ancestor probably was not even aware, did not care if they felt embarrassed in the moment. They just were so interested in finding food to survive. Yeah, I think, as I said, they were, I think they were mostly tribal in those days. It might have been, you know, uh, five or 10 people living together, but you, you know, you couldn't have a city back in those days because, you know, you said we're just scavenging for food. And so you could only live in small groups, but it's interesting. There's the cultural things that we have, even going back to those days, for example, if I wave to you, it's a sign. See, there's nothing in my hand. I'm not going to attack you. And also the handshake is, you know, I don't have a rock in my hand. If, you know, if I would, you know, if I, you know, we meet on a path or whatever, if I want to do you and I might be carrying a rock that would be of a size that could, I could hide it in my palm, but it would be like brass knuckles if I decide to punch you or hit you over the head. So uh, that kind of reminds me uh, now I've, I've heard this story and I've spoken to some people who specialize uh, on the Roman empire. I actually, am going to be talking to a Roman empire expert on Saturday, uh, but I've always heard this story of Roman politicians meeting in these bathhouses and being completely mm. naked and discussing <laughs> politics and discussing business in there. And they weren't just naked because they enjoyed it. It was actually a way to prove that they weren't concealing a knife or a dagger. Yeah. They weren't going to be. Because like, if you're completely naked, you can't be concealing a dagger. Now, I've told people that story, and I've gotten mixed feelings. Like, no, that's not true. I'm going to ask my uh, Roman Empire friend on Saturday <laughs> if that's indeed true. It's, it makes a great story, though, right? <laughs> and it, no, really, it's, it sounds very reasonable. And uh, the other thing I will say, getting back to the book, which it was very interesting to me, he spent, I think, most of the first chapter talking about torture. And you might say man's inhumanity to man, but the Iron Maiden, and uh, you've heard the expression drawn and quartered. Yes. Uh, which, you know, probably great entertainment in those days back before the Roman Colosseum. But, you know, this is how we were, we were punishing people. Of course, uh, you know, someone stole something, you, you cut out their hand. It was a very, very rough life. And so I, I, I wish he would have condensed that a little bit, but he was you know, very, very graphic. But uh, You know, that's also important. I think how we kill somebody is also sort of a, a test of, of where we're at as a society because, you know, there are a few states left that have the death penalty, <laughs> but we have a lethal injection. Like we, we've, for most part, I think maybe Texas still has the electric chair and there's only a few people that are grandfathered in to receive that. But I, I think that if a society takes pleasure in watching yeah. that person scream or, or like they're completely ripped and it's a, a long, painful process, then I think that kind of gives uh, weight to how barbaric a society might be. Whereas if we kind of say, hey, you're a very bad person, we want to be done with you as quickly and as expediently and as painless as possible, I think that kind of speaks to also some type of evolution we're going through. Yeah, I don't know if it would probably a couple hundred years ago, but yeah, we would have public hangings. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, you know, you couldn't watch uh, things on TV. So crowd would gather around and uh, the horse wrestler or the cattle wrestler would be strung up and you'd bring your kids and everything else 
And uh, yeah, that was just the way things are done. That's another, you know, that's another thing, especially when, you know, when we talk about lynching and, and other kind of public mm. spectacle hangings, it was something that we wanted children to see. And, and that to me almost has a, a, we would think of that as almost being demonic today. Like if, if we, like if, a, if somebody had to kill someone today, it would be kind of a private affair. It would be done with shame <laughs> and remorse and like, you know, hide your children. This is graphic. But the fact that people, our ancient ancestors made a public spectacle of this and, and, and invited children, like you would take kindergarten, imagine taking a kindergarten class and watching someone get hung. I, I'm like, that doesn't even seem human to me anymore. Yeah. Well, lynching, of course, was to intimidate the blacks. Uh, it was probably done in the dark of night, but it was, you know, probably a tree at the edge of town or whatever. So people coming and going would walk by the black man that was hung. In fact, I think it was in Jordan Peterson's that uh, saying that we know what is, a, you know, very fearful to us. And that's what we use to ex extract that punishment on others. And we're very, very uh, bad torturers. And you know, it's interesting because we also hear about Vlad the Impaler, Genghis Khan, who also did some very, very, very tough mutilation, boiling people and, and all of this very nasty stuff. But each of them not only conquered, but they also broke the golden rule because I don't think any of those men <laughs> would have liked to have been tortured in that way. And, and maybe, yeah. maybe you could make the argument if you have two soldiers in war, well, you know, I'm trying to kill you, you're trying to kill me. But let's just make this as painless as possible for the both of us. I, I think perhaps maybe, uh, I, you know, I've obviously never been in war. I've never been a soldier. So it, it's hard for me to exactly know what is in that mindset. But the fact that our ancestors actively did things onto others and killed them in ways that they would never in a million years want to be killed. I mean, even the mafia, if you think about the way that they may have like beaten or roughed someone up or, uh, threw them to the uh, bottom of some ocean to, to die. It's just not, not, not at all befitting like a worthy adversary, so to speak. Yeah. That brings something else to me to, to mind is witches because, you know, it was three, 400 years ago, whatever, they were the terrorists of their time because whenever people don't understand what's going on, you, you have to try to find out what the cause is. And people will think, oh, it's, you know, Widow Jones that lives in the little cabin at the edge of town. Uh, you know, my, my little girl got sick. And, you know, she, the day before, she talked to Widow Jones, and she must be a witch. So we get the, what the dunking school and uh, dip her in, you know, underwater. And if she rises, you know, she's a witch. And if she doesn't, she, you know, I forget all the details. But, yeah, they would kill uh, innocent people and women, uh, young girls and things, thinking they were making it a better society. And now we look back and say, oh, my gosh, but they just didn't understand. When we enact the death penalty, whether you're for it mm. or against it, uh, the people are, are typically hardened criminals. And they, they may have been they might be wrongly sitting on death row, but at least if you follow the facts, we would assume that they are, they, they did something heinous. Like you can't even get, I think the death penalty for killing one person. You have to have <laughs> killed, I think multiple people. Mm -hmm. But our ancestors, if you were just subscribing to a religion that we didn't like, or if you yeah. had some thoughts in your head, 
that that the world didn't like, you were tortured and 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 brutally killed. Whereas I I think it's an evolution that you can have unfavorable thoughts, but we're not going to brutally uh, kill and torture you. Yeah, and extermination. Yeah, was it Czechoslovakia when they broke up in different regions? And I think I understand that you're Jewish. Of course, it's the Holocaust that we'll just we'll right. just get rid of. We'll just declare these people others, and we'll just just get rid of them. Yeah, they, we've had some some terrible history along those lines. Speaking of the Holocaust, um, and this is something that maybe we, we can kind of parse together. So when I think of the Holocaust, I think of something you know very efficiently done, something that was extremely heinous, and it almost reminds me of some form of medieval torture, but done in a 20th century uh, lens, basically. And it makes me scratch my head a little bit because it seems like a regression. Like we had medieval torture. We had things that were, we had the Spanish Inquisition. And then, you know, people still fought one another. We still got in wars, but there wasn't necessarily, and perhaps it's just my gaps in history. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something here. But, you know, we had the American Revolution. You know, we had the French Revolution. And that that was pretty brutal. But we never had this widespread extermination, you know, after the Middle Ages, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden we hit the Holocaust. So I always wonder, why is it that, you know, we had genocides and terrible things up to the Middle Ages, but then, you know, we kind of have like a, a period where there are wars, but not genocides, and then all of a sudden the genocide becomes fashionable again in the 20th century. I think you have to look at a broad scope of and what my impression is, it really starts with the First World War, that Germany was penalized terribly uh, for starting the war. And so I don't know exactly the background, but uh, I think the German people were starving. And so this leader came along. And uh, in fact, that was one thing I made some notes that wanted to get into Machiavelli. That was his famous book, The Prince. And his advice is you have to start a war and, you know, find an enemy to create an other. So I think that was Hitler's idea that he was, you know, had these huge gatherings and huge speeches and identify the others. And the things are lesser known now, but they're also going after the disabled, uh, the people who are, you know, I guess the polite term is mentally incompetent or whatever. Anyone that wasn't a good white Aryan German boy, we're going to destroy. And it, it's a terrible thought. But we know now people whipping up a crowd uh, and, and everybody cheering together which for the lynching or uh, to start going after a group of people. Uh, it, very, it, it can happen. It's a terrible thought. Do you think that perhaps that might be a hole in, in Pinker's uh, philosophy or ideology that the world is, is getting better? Because if we have some example of, of a regression along the timeline, then it's mm -hmm. possible to assume that maybe we'll see another regression, uh, you know, as time moves forward. Yeah, and, and that's a certainly the thing uh, concerning nuclear weapons, that uh, we have such powerful weapons now, we can wipe out the whole world. Uh, maybe not completely with the bombs, but then there's the radiation for a few million years. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. We we can draw the chart and the graph goes down gradually, but you're right. There all, always could be uh, an exception. 
nuclear bombs are, are obviously a horrific thing, but uh, there are, uh, you know, I, I study political science in graduate school and there's this theory called uh, MAD or mutually assured destruction, <laughs> which is this idea that if, uh, and this was, this was a Soviet era type thing. Like if the Soviet union did anything to us, we have a, a secret arsenal of nuclear warheads somewhere, you know, in the Pacific and all around the world. And we would just fire one of these babies off and blow up half their country in retaliation an instant retaliation, even if DC went under. And this has been thought of as a, a most beautiful and wonderful thing because, because of MAD, you can't really have another world war. You can't really use these nuclear bombs because you never know where that secret uh, bomb will go off and blow up half of your country. Now, this kind of goes out the window if we're talking about like a terrorist organization that doesn't yeah. doesn't have like a home base, and then that's kind of scary because if they launch something, well, where where do you retaliate to? You know, if they don't have like a, a centralized country that they're operating out of. But yeah. the thing that that leaves me really unsatisfied about Mad is that it doesn't really mean that we as human beings are better people. It just means that the stakes are higher, and we have to be careful and i kind of don't like that it doesn't it doesn't how do you feel about that dave well i guess i was gonna say Aaron. this this brings me back to my youth because that's the era i grew up in uh you've probably seen the pictures of ducking cover that there's <laughs> nuclear war we're getting get under our elementary school desks yeah that, that's going to help in a nuclear war but uh, but it was the interesting thing because, uh, of course, our Soviets were our ally in World War II against uh, fascist Germany. But we very much looked down our noses. But um, and I'm very much a, stu a, a student of Truman and Eisenhower. But we knew that we had to work with these people, so we we started talks, and uh, so at least the Soviets were reasonable enough to realize that because they well i think they said if it was 75 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever you know after you you launch your missile they're going to be delivered to, to the other country so you know we just can't have this exchange happen in fact i work for the phone company and we're very uh, proud that we put in the the hotline which i guess was really a couple teletypes back in the old day to start communication uh, between the soviets and ourselves to prevent that, but as you're right, we got some terrorist organization now that's going to do it. Yeah, because you know we have good examples of people uh, sacrificing themselves for some some cause. So yeah, it, it's the world's in that way is a very dangerous place now. Although I I know they made attempts to try to bring in some of these old nuclear weapons and disable them, but yeah, it's it's a scary thought. Let me ask you this question, Dave. Suppose nuclear weapons were never invented. We, we just never, <laughs> we, we never invented them at all. Einstein didn't lend any theories or yeah. any math to make that happen. Would we be just as vicious of, as we've always been? So I'm wondering, like, and let's just say everything else remained the same. The, the technology, mm -hmm. the information, the, the internet, everything else is the same. We just don't have nuclear warheads. Would our like would we really be these awesome angels that don't engage in world wars, or do you think world wars would be back on the table? Well, that's the thing. We we continually advance our technology to get more efficient at killing people. 
but uh, you know, it was the was the bow and arrow for a while. Then you'd have you know hundreds of archers shooting arrows at the other side, uh, and then uh, muskets and rifles, and then then the cannon comes along can do terrible damage to knock down buildings, and of course, well before the cannon was the catapult. But so um, no, and and that's the sad thing is that we always uh, reward these these poor engineers that come up with these tools of war. But uh, it just seemed like that we've have come to like the end that, uh, uh, and of course the sad thing is like just traditional bombs. Uh, in, in fact, that's a lesser known fact that uh, fire bombing in World War II was oh so unethical, but it was attempt to you know scare the people into submission. But we killed more people in Dresden in a fire bombing than we killed with a nuclear weapon in. Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Wow. So, yeah. That I did and, not know. I did not know that. Wow. And and the thing is, and, and Dresden wasn't even a military target. It was a cultural center. There are universities there and, you know, I, I don't know, uh, academies of music and all that kind of stuff. They were just to kill civilians and just to, to reign terror. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it's almost as if, like, if we didn't have these things, the killing would still occur. We'd still find different ways of, of killing each other without the nuclear bombs. And perhaps, perhaps maybe even those ways would be more like, like messier even like, because they're, they're, they're so like a firebomb. I, I imagine is just this chaotic uh, spiral of fire. And that seems oh. really, really unpleasant. Now I'm sure hit, being hit with a nuclear warhead isn't exactly a walk through the park either, but I, I could imagine that like the more like, the less precise the instrument, the more brutal the death. Yeah, and that brings back to my mind, we had a thing called the neutron bomb for a while. And I, of course, this is probably 40, 50 years ago. But because it was neutrons, there was no radiation. So it would destroy the buildings, but not the people. So that was, I think, somebody's idea for a while. But since I, as I say, you may not even heard of it. It's, it's gone away it's it's not talked about anymore but uh, they've always uh, had ideas to talk about like that uh, hopefully they're not bringing that back right <laughs> yeah. let's not well, let's not give anyone any ideas about like hey let's bring back the neutron bomb and, <laughs> and I, had, I had one comment to make about the death penalty sure because um, to me it's revenge uh, because I mean there's been studies that prove it it doesn't prevent anyone because typically rational people aren't murderers but uh, I have a, ra a favorite radio host that was, oh, pro-death penalty or whatever. And I, a couple times I tried to call him because my thought is, like, for example, Timothy McVeigh blew up this building in Oklahoma City and killed thousands of people. Yeah. And my thought was, wouldn't you like to interview Timothy McVeigh like 20 or 30 years later? Because then at that time, he might be honest about, in fact, this book, I forget the name of the book, was found on the... Uh, front seat of his car about uh, conservative revolution and things but so yeah wouldn't you like to know if, was he was he really influenced by that was he attempting to start an armed revolution but but we we, we want to kill somebody by god we want to kill him right away we don't you know although now most civil cases you know they go on forever and ever in appeal but uh oh the thing about the uh or our spy that's over in Moscow now, the young guy that is a conserver, computer wizard. Oh, Snowden? Yeah, Edward Snowden. To me, um, I've heard him interviewed a couple of times. See, a brilliant guy, 
and he was took the lid off a terrible problem in our society, but by God, let's kill the guy. And it, to me, it's as much to silence him as anything else, because a lot of these people could tell stories. But yes, I, you know, I, going back to the Timothy McVeigh thing, and you know, uh, Charles Mason, for example, and he lived a very <laughs> uh, full life in jail. But he doesn't seem to have changed at all. Like he still thinks he's some kind of pseudo god and wonder if leaving these serial killers alive for 30 years, like <laughs> do they change or do they just keep regurgitating the same, the same stories about themselves? Yeah. And, <clears throat> and I can't really claim much, but I just thought that might be an opportunity because, you know, while he's a trial, he's just defending himself and he's got not going to admit anything. But after a while, uh, I would decide there might be a possibility. Because, well, like, who was the, the professor was up in the woods in Idaho or something like that, sending letter bombs to people? Oh, the unit um, bomber? But obviously an educated guy. Yeah. And I think, was it, I think it was his brother or sister, somebody recognized his prose and said, I think it might be this guy that's kind of disturbed or whatever. But, uh, yeah, we've, that's, that's a sad thing in our society. We have these disturbed people hanging around and we don't have a really good way to find them. Maybe, you know, I, I like what you said that everyone on their trial, innocent or guilty, wants to get out of jail. And I, I think that that's, <laughs> I, I think sure. that's a very uh, true thing about human nature. You could be a saint, but with the prospect of life in prison, you're going to do everything to kind of get out of that. And maybe being in jail, like once you have life and there's no parole and you know that, that um, is basically going to be the end of it. Then at that point, maybe you can break down and cry and apologize and be sorry because you know that whether you're sorry or not sorry, your, your, your situation isn't going to change. It's not going to affect you. You have no stake in the game anymore because you're, you're not leaving jail no matter what you do. So thinking about, Dave, about, about like the human element and, and the human capacity to change our hearts, because like, like looking outside, like, oh my God, this nuclear warhead or being on death row and then some kind of external thing. There is an example from Pinker's book about, about the printing press that you want to share. Yes, Aaron. It, one of the things that really uh, got to me in the fascination, of course, we've all always heard the story of Gutenberg and the printing press. And of course, being a good Christian, he started you know, pushing Bibles. Um, and because before that, when books were handwritten, they were very, very rare. So he started, you know, printing Bibles and Bibles and Bibles. He thought, wow. And it was interesting, about that same time, uh, violence was decreasing. But the interesting thing, according to Pinker, was, it, well, it wasn't really that century. It was the next century. Hmm. And at that point, they were starting to push out what I call dime store romance novels. Of course, that was... The economy now, I guess you call it a dollar store romance novels. But just the, the plain everyday fiction stories of uh, normal people in their everyday lives. And his theory is that uh, where the Bible is good as far as morality and uh, religion, all this idealism. But when you start reading about other people, uh, wow, they've got a life just like me. So when we raid the village, uh, maybe we shouldn't put this, the heads of all the men on stakes on the outside of the village. Maybe, you know, maybe we can you know, overtake the village, but not be so violent about it. Now that, that story actually gives me hope 
And the reason it does is that with the, with the nuclear bombs uh, sort of making us less violent, that's out of necessity. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that through knowledge and, and through some kind of like reading and then some kind of conversation about morality and justice and humanity, that's actually what can lead to the most change is, is when we have conversations and we think about like we reflect. And I think those dime store books actually cause people to have that pause and be like, wait a minute, like it's gotta be a better way to do this. Or like, <laughs> I wouldn't want this done to me. And, you know, so I, I think that like we need more of that. One other observation that war is seductive. It's so tempting uh, as I said, I'm a member of Veterans for Peace, and we have a convention every every year. And a few years ago, we had a convention, and they were talking about this Freedom Brigade that went over to fight in the Spanish Civil War. And I think it was like school teachers from New York and some labor organizers or whatever. And they're over there fighting the fascists and all this good stuff. And you're saying, well, come on, Roosevelt, send them some weapons. Come on, send them some guns. Send, you know. And I realized, now, wait a minute. I'm in the Venice of Peace Convention, and I'm trying to talk somebody to send war materials to kill people. Hmm. So as I said, it's, it's just so seductive and so tempting to get your way with somebody to shake them or to hit your wife or to beat up your neighbor. We have just brought, been brought up this culture. That's the way to get your way, and it's, that's what we have to unlearn. I'm very, I'd like to learn more about veterans uh, for peace in many ways. A lot of people, you know, and I'm actually guilty of making this argument myself, and maybe you have a better answer. I always say, well, you know, like, like Albert Einstein was a a huge peace advocate. He believed no, you know, peace Mm -hmm. at all costs. And then Hitler came along and he (laughs) fled the country and was like, okay, I can see that there are exceptions. Like we, we, you know, like we can't always have peace. So what do you say as a veteran for peace? What do you say in the Hitler scenario where it's like, okay, nothing we do works here? <laughs> Boy, Aaron, that's the good, that's a $10 million question right there. In fact, uh, yeah, I have some veterans friends are on the conservative side and they asked me that question. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's a simplistic answer to say, no, no wars, uh, no hitting, no violence, but you're right. It was a situation um, and it had to be done. It had, this man had to be stopped, but it is interesting though, uh, because I've, I've argued with people about, well, we had the American civil war and we had to break free from Britain. So we had to have a war against them. Didn't we? So, well, actually over in India, there was this guy called Gandhi. And even though some people got hurt, he had a nonviolent revolution against Britain and India broke free from Britain without war. Oh, yeah, I guess so. And one of my friends that was our chapter president for a while uh, brought forth a good uh, series. But Martin Luther King Jr., of course, was advocating for radical change in our country to do it nonviolently. Uh, they talked about, I think, some Scandinavian countries that was uh, had passive re- resistance against the Germans in World War II. But, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, we advocate for resolving disputes without war and violence. But yeah, it, it's uh, it's a difficult question sometimes. Yeah, it, it is. I, I've been in discussions with people with, and I use Gandhi all the time of like, aha. And then, <laughs> and then I think, I, and I, I have these debates and I don't have the answer if like, 
if the Jews would have tried a nonviolent thing, would, would that have like changed his mind? And, and I'm going to say, no, it would not have worked. He would have gone about his genocidal business without a care in the world. But I, I think that the, like, you know, before Gandhi, I'm really trying to think of nonviolent protests before. And I, I think that the fact that the nonviolent protest is a, is a birth child of the 20th century mm-hmm. might show us that we are evolving because, you know, I've, I've, and again, I'm sure there probably was a nonviolent protest of sorts before Gandhi, but I, I can't really recall it, it being as powerful and provocative up until that point. And the fact that you have MLK that emulates it, you know, several decades later, and, you know, and there's other movements now that, that kind of have nonviolent uh, tactics and passive uh, resistance. It kind of shows us that our, our means of disagreeing with another has evolved, especially in the 20th century. We're trying. Um, there was a, a feminist leader, and I think it may have been Harriet Beecher Stowe, but you know, another famous lady in that period. And I forget now if it was after the Civil War or World War One, and it, it was her Mother's Day message, and it was a definite anti-war message that the mothers of the world will no longer let their sons go off to kill the sons of other mothers. It's, it's a very powerful uh, statement, but it's not very well known anymore. But people have made this attempt from time to time, and I forget who was the British leader uh, that flew over and attempted to appease Hitler to prevent the war, but unsuccessfully, obviously. But um, yeah. Do you know, but, here's uh, a fun fact. Did you know that Gandhi wrote a letter to Hitler? <laughs> um, wow. He, he actually did. And uh, I don't think he was, so Gandhi was, I think, being held by the British at the time. And I don't even think the British let the letter release. <laughs> but Gandhi actually writes, you know, my friend, oh. I, like he actually talks to Hitler as if he, I don't think he knew that much about what he was doing, but he writes something along the lines of my friend, I see what you're doing in Germany and there's a better way of doing it. Mm. Try nonviolence and so forth. And who knows if that letter had actually arrived at Hitler's <laughs> desk. I wonder if some correspondence would have started i you know it's one of these things in history that uh <laughs> we'll never know well and the other interesting thing is a lot of hitler's idea came from the united states of our white supremacy and was it eugenics or whatever the uh racial separations oh and the other thing oh and that uh, gandhi i think had been an officer in the british military which was kind of interesting and a lawyer, yeah, he 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 had a very he was definitely his his career path was going in one direction, <laughs> and then he just took a radical turn. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, you, you know, I, I I so getting back to the Pinker thesis, it's like why <laughs> you know like we do have the Holocaust, we do have things that kind of contradict it, but mm-hmm. I I would be hard pressed to disagree with his conclusions, and and like. I, 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 I do see the argument that the nuclear warheads are peace out of necessity, not out of love and kindness. But the fact that, you know, even when we have uh, the, the rioting, as it is called today, I, I think it's far, far more tame and, and, and just like of, 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 I mean, there is violence. I, I can't say there isn't. But I, I think that the way that we're protesting and the way that we're interacting with one another is, is, has evolved considerably from where we came from. Yeah, that brings up another important point uh, from Pinker, is that having the authority figure, 
the police in the city, the sheriff in the rural area, the highway patrol uh, in the highways, that is the greatest reduction in crime and violence. Um, and the, the very troubling thing now, okay, we've had some police officers that are doing uh, bad things, they're making mistakes, they're abusing their power, and they're obviously abusing uh, blacks and other uh, people of color. But the answer is not to do away with the police. Um, and, you know, I'm close to Portland, and, and that's been going on, I guess, for 100 days now or whatever. And it's, a, a, to me, a misinformed conclusion that because we've had some uh, defective police officers, we have to do away with the police. Um, although our, our culture is now fairly peaceful, but we still have to have an, an authority figure. So maybe, like, maybe we're not at such a, an evolved state that we can have no police at all, but perhaps the next state is how do we have more peaceful interaction between police and citizens? Like, I, I think that would oh. be like the next layer to kind of fix of like, how, how do we get that like evolved relationship in place because we're definitely not at the level where we, we don't have anyone in charge and we all just keep our doors unlocked and trust one another. I wish, I wish we could get to that level, but yeah. I think that's like the next, the next step. And, and like, I, I think if you follow Pinker, you know, his evolution of our nature is over the course of 10,000 years. And yeah. I sometimes think that we want to jump the gun. We want to get all the way to the utopia of no police. We all are hugging and kissing each other and in and, and perfect harmony. But we don't appreciate that our evolution and our better nature, if you would, takes 10,000 years. It's taken a long time for us to get here. Yeah. And the, the other sad thing right now is we do a lot of our treatment of especially the mentally ill but also of addictions, we throw everybody in prison or, or jail. And I think I've heard the figure about 30% of our jail population are actually mentally ill. And it would actually be far cheaper to give them a good mental illness treatment or a you know, drug addiction uh, withdrawal policy or whatever. But we, we are so addicted to simple solutions. And that kind of comes back to like the Genghis Khan, like, uh, you know, do on to others as you want done to you. Like Genghis Khan did not care. He tortured people in ways I'm sure he would not want to be tortured. But if we ask ourselves, if I was addicted to heroin or some uh, pernicious drug, would I want the book thrown at me? Would, would I like, like, am I not deserving of help and uh, rehabilitation? Uh, that there might still need to be some sort of punitive consequence for, for that behavior. But to say that that person's not deserving of some rehabilitation so that they can get off something they can't very well control, I, I think kind of violates the golden rule. Well, and that's a problem in our society. It's the opioids, which, which isn't the illegal heroin. It's the pain pills that, you know, somebody may have been in an automobile accident or broke their leg or whatever, and they need to have pain pills. Absolutely. But the prescription you're not controlled and sometimes you can go to another doctor and get some more, so you may be overdosing. And so it's very easy to get into a habit. And uh, so people are addicted, but you're right. We need to, because to me, they can be productive members of society in most cases, but we need to give them treatment 
and not just say, well, you're just a bad person, so we're going to lock you up. So that's, that's my viewpoint anyway. Uh, well, Dave, I, I really like our conversation, and I think that um, I, I think it's nice talking with you, and, and I, I think we can both reflect that we've come a long way. And mm -hmm. just because we've come a long way doesn't mean that we're done progressing. Like, I, I think we still need to progress and, and get better. But sometimes it's nice to just uh, sit and at least be like, hey, uh, we're not clubbing each other to death as much as we <laughs> used to. <laughs> yes, and I realize in our conversations on the uh, 52 Living Ideas that you brought up the idea of asking questions. So I knew if I talked to you, you'd ask me questions. But uh, to me, we, didn't, we yeah, didn't club each other to death in this interview. <laughs> not quite, but yeah, it made a small step toward a better world. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Erin. And with that, we conclude our seventh episode of the Truth Island podcast. Please join us next time.